You are listening to the Firecracker Podcast with Tony Rico. All right. Hello, softball sports fans. We are here. You know, I've got a, def- a couple different ways that I can lead into this, but I thought about this. So we are here with Courtney Blades. Wait, Courtney Blades Rogers, <laughs> one of the greatest pitchers in the history of softball. <laughs> and Courtney, I just thought I'd, I'd kind of come out of left field with that and surprise you with that, that, you know, I could start with the, that you're Britton Rogers' mom and you're a firecracker coach and mom and you have that background because that's really how we um, have met each other. But I'm going to start with apologizing to our organization. Uh, I, I feel an apology, apology to you, but it's indirect of, my gosh, we have one of the greatest pitchers of all time in our organization or, you know, uh, with your family in it. and to not dive into the story just a little bit, because this isn't about you, it's about pitching. But how do we talk about pitching without starting with the fact that, my gosh, Court, and, and so I'm going to start with, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, did uh, Lou Harris recruit you out of high school? So did you, you originally went to Nickel State, and does that, was Lou the Yes, yes, Lou Harris recruited me out of high school, and oddly enough, um, as successful as I was at the end, um, I was just a, you know, one of those kids that was good on the field and she happened to find me. I was close to home. I had some friends that were already on the team. So yeah, she came and found me actually in Texas at a tournament in Texas. So that's how I got kind of hooked up with her. Yeah. And your so your first year you set an NCAA record with almost 500 strikeouts, right? So 497 Ks your first year with three no-nos and a, and a perfect game. Right. And then we'll, we'll fast forward. And then you take them to the world. Well, okay. You, but the team goes to the world series in 1999. I assume the first time for them. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, after I transferred from Nichols to Southern Miss my junior year. So yeah, Southern Miss, we went to, yes. World series first time. And you went with, with coach Lou. So she had had taken the job at uh, Southern Miss. So you finished up at Southern Miss and then world series in 1999, uh, 2000 you're 2000 you're the national pitcher of the year you're the mvp usa mvp and the honda award winner which i, I knew of that that's a very prestigious award award because that's all sports right females in, in, mm-hmm. in sports uh four more no-nos uh and two more perfect <laughs> games i believe in your last year uh your second perfect game against arizona in the college world series which at that time when and anyone that knows of the history arizona was always the toughest offense or one of the toughest toughest offenses in the country. So to have that success against them, I mean, this body of work, Courtney, is ridiculous. You took Southern Miss to third, <laughs> third place, so College World Series at third place. And I believe the, the do I have it right? The game that you beat Arizona was that the first game of the series? Was that your first game? Yes, that was our first game, night game. So that you knock you knock them you knock them into the wrong side of things, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was bittersweet. We had played them earlier in the season, and they pretty much stomped us at their field. So, yeah. Which, which, which again, is a tough place to play. So I got a couple more things to roll through here because, my goodness. Uh, so first pitcher to break 500 and 600 strikeouts in a season. So that's a, those are career numbers. So 500 in one season, 600 in another season. Uh, you finish with 151 career wins. 151 <laughs> career wins. Your senior year, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm, you know, you got your own Wikipedia, give me a break. So you're 50, 52 <laughs> and 7 your senior year. You didn't know you were going to get embarrassed like this. No, I didn't. 52 and 7, you know, uh, someone would question if that was abuse towards a pitcher, but that's, that's ridiculous. That's, you're averaging almost 33 wins a season. 130 win season is a benchmark for pitchers, and you average 33 in your four years you had an 18 strikeout game you had a 21 strikeout game in a 13 inning game and Courtney this body of work sits alone just by itself and 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 the reason that it's so significant to me is because I think that I feel the most pain in my heart for pitchers in this game today um uh, I I just my opinion I feel like they uh they're the most vulnerable on the field and and to so few of them experience well so few people in period uh, experience this type of dominance but experience the um, what it's like to be successful in the circle so whether it's winning or how you carry yourself or have the stuff or whatever it is and so into that phrase that I talk about you you know how to pitch but do you know how to pitch okay you know how to pitch your pitchers on your team know how to pitch but do they know how to win 
do they win because you've called a great game? Do they win because their coaches have put everything around them and they execute? Because there's those types of pitchers. Not every pitcher has to have that unique something that I'm going to just say in my experience with you, we already know you have that and we want to talk about that. But that is special, Courtney. And so I want to kind of, I have to create the, the entrance with that body of work and say, wow, you know, um, it's our responsibility to make sure that that sits in a pocket. It's kind of like doing a, a podcast with Natasha Watley a, a few months ago and Natasha being one of the best slappers ever. And, and, and I feel that it's the sports response. It's the sports responsibility to keep her relevant in some in sense, some sense. And I feel like that's with players like yourself as well. So thank you for spending time with me this morning. And really what, so we want to parlay that into kind of helping our pitchers. And just talking about pitching in general. So the quick first question I, I have for you is because now you're looking at these strikeout numbers, right? And strikeout numbers, if you look at even like the top five or top 10 all-time strikeout leaders, you know, it seems like they all have predominantly one or two or three certain types of pitches. But I would ask mm-hmm. you, what was your bread and butter? Like, what did you get it done with? I mean, that's a lot of accolades for a lot of years. And so what was your <laughs> bread and butter? Well, um, I get asked this question a lot and I think I actually had two and I think it's kind of a combination that I think a lot of people forget about or maybe don't have or don't think about, but I had a really good rise and I had a really good change and the change up is the pitch that made the difference between freshman, sophomore year and junior, senior year. It, um, and by the way, all those numbers, thank you for reminding me of all those. I don't look at all that kind of stuff. I really don't. Um, I just know that, when you put the work in stuff, you know, those type of numbers are going to come sometimes. Um, but pitch wise rise ball changeup were my pitches and everybody what knew between it. Your, your sophomore and junior year, what happened with the chain? Was it the development, the, how you're using it? Like what happened specifically? Yeah, I think so. I went in as a freshman thinking, okay, I'm a really good pitcher. I know what I'm doing. And then when you get to college, not so much, you still have a lot to learn. Um, and I had a change up and I had a rise ball those, those first two years. I mean, I played UL, which was at, at that moment, USL now is ULL. I played them as a freshman and struck a bunch of them out with a rise ball. But, um, between sophomore year and junior year, I developed a different kind of change up and it took about six months or so to figure that pitch out. But once it showed up, oh my goodness, the difference it made. So I went from throwing, I don't even really know what it was to throwing a a flip change or what some people call a backhand change. And it was, it was difference maker, big, big time. And what was it that made that difference? Was it the arm speed, the trajectory, the speed of the pitch, the the keeping it low? Like what was the difference in the delivery of the pitch that made such a difference in full and battle? The delivery of the pitch was exactly the same. So it looked a lot or it looked just like everything else. And I've watched um, Nyree White do uh, her, her podcast with you. And I loved it because she said it has to look exactly the same. And that's a hundred percent correct. It has to look exactly the same because if it doesn't, I think our hitters and, and our technology nowadays is too good to not be able to pick that kind of stuff up. But the trajectory of the ball was down. It came out of my hand flat and it, and sometimes it would break down. I know how to dirty the pitch. I could put it in the ground with two strikes. Um, so a lot of that had to do with mental stuff, but the physical side, it looked exactly like everything else. And and even if you knew it was coming, it was still hard to hit. So and, it was and great. You and I have had good conversations about even in, in our experiences. For me, as a, a when I'm in the third base box, the toughest pitchers for us uh, historically to score runs against have been the pitchers that have the rise ball and change of combination. You know, they, we have to be more creative. We have to sit on either one pocket or the other because they're two different attack points right. as far as what we're trying to do. And so, but we see, I, I started to see that disappear and, and you were pitching at 43 feet. Yeah, I was at 43 feet in college. Prior to that travel ball was all 40 feet. So now at college, and again, uh, being a dominant power type pitcher, but that, that extra three feet, right, is, the, is a big difference to the batter. So big difference. I've seen a lot of pitchers compromise because they can't get the ball back here on the batter because they're three feet farther back, and the batters are able to get their bat head out, especially right now with all the lawn stuff. It's like getting out here and, 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 and driving things. So that's, that's also impressive, the fact that throwing at that distance and you still have that that strikeout capacity, you know, those numbers didn't diminish. I mean, they were, they, they increased and that that's impressive as well too. So do you contribute that to um, when you were developing, was it, were you power minded? Were you someone that liked to throw hard? Like when you first started pitching and, and what age was that? Six, eight, 10, 12. What, 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 when did it start? Uh, this is funny. I actually, I actually was a catcher to start, you know, 
Everybody wants to catch or pitch. So I was a catcher, got hit in the arm, reaching for the ball twice in the same game with the bat in the elbow. The very next week, I was on the mound pitching. Never had a pitching lesson, anything. So I was actually 10 the first time I ever put my arm in. Well, we actually did slingshot back then to start. Wow. So, yeah, I'm, I'm aging myself here. But, <laughs> but yeah, we went slingshot and then windmill within the same year. But still, I was 10 when I started, so probably about average for where kids are starting these days, although I think a lot of kids are starting younger. But we were 40 feet big ball the whole time. I never pitched at 35. I never pitched with a small ball, none of those things. And then the first time I moved back to 43 was my freshman year in college. So when you first started, did you have uh, – um a niche for it? Did you have a love for it? Was it something that you kind of naturally excelled at, but you're like, look, Tony, after that, I'd go out and I'd either ride horses or do other stuff or you know, <laughs> where did you sit here? Is it something that you really attached to or once you started it? Um, I think softball in general was what I liked. And I don't know, you know, at that age, it's hard for first hard for me to remember right now, but I do know that I liked having the ball in my hand every single time. So the minute I became a pitcher, I didn't look back. I never wanted to play another position. Um, I had to play outfield in college a little bit, which was horrible for me because I hated playing outfield, but I did it so I could hit. Um, but pitching was my thing. And, and I just think it was, I don't know, you know, my parents weren't super big athletes. They, they played, but it was my thing. The minute I hit the field and I was in the circle, that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted the ball. I wanted the ball every single time. So um, I, I guess maybe I was born that way because my coaches weren't, you know, beating it into my head that you have to be the best. They didn't do that. My team practiced a lot and we only played in the summer. But other than that, and I'll, and I'll tell everybody this, I didn't practice. I, I wasn't year round like, like the kids are now. So um, when I hit the field, I hit the field with a hundred percent every time. So it was um, when you would work on your own, did you, how did you develop? Did you, did you start on your own? Did you mimic? Did you, did you, see anybody like when you first started where do you credit uh, your development to and, and kind of phasing into the type of style that you learned as far as whether it was coaching or how did you develop tell me about that so um when i started there was a organization in louisiana they're still around it's called the louisiana patriots and they had a uh like i guess it was what we would call now their president but he was the owner of it they had a facility i started with group lessons we had about 10 kids in a group and that's where the fundamentals came from. Um, and it was crazy. I, I really think the lessons were like $10 for an hour. And he had 10 kids in there. And we just kind of went through it more like what you would call a camp nowadays. Um, we didn't really do private lessons back then. So there was a lot of working on your own. I'd go to the group lessons once a week. Um, as I got older, so I say older, uh, I guess more like 14s or so, I would come over to Houston about once every six weeks or so. And I couldn't tell you the guy's name who I saw, but that's who I got all my spinny stuff from. So I'd see him once a weekend for every six weeks and then I'd go home and work on my own. So, but we didn't have YouTube and we didn't have all of that stuff. So, so I guess, yeah, I developed on my own and I practiced a lot with my team. I wasn't one of those kids where you could find in the yard every single day. That wasn't me. I was swimming, riding my bike, all those kinds of things. Um, so, but I watched a ton of softball. When I had the opportunity, I would go, um, LSU didn't have a team at that point, but USL did. And coach Gerard was the coach there, coach Yvette. So I'd go and watch them. So, but, and my mom tells me all the time, I never left the ballpark. So I would go to the ball field and watch if I wasn't playing. So I guess that's where it came from. And, and I'm a big believer even to this day that if, if you were to line up all of my pitchers, nobody looks exactly the same. So I think I kind of developed my own sense of style by watching different people and figuring out what I liked more than what I felt was right because I didn't know I was just kind of doing it. And, you know, it, it worked in the games and the competitive side. We always played really good competition. So that helped. But um, as far who as influenced you, Courtney, who, who you say you watch softball. So were there certain pitchers that, that influenced you? Um, well, obviously I watched Lisa Fernandez. She's not that much older than I am, but so as I got older, she was old enough to where that type of stuff was on TV and, you know, they were doing games and stuff. So uh, she's really the person that I watched the most. She was so dominant and looking back on it now, 
I, and I didn't throw hard. I, I threw like 64. I topped out at 67, but you would never catch me throwing 67 in a game. I think I hit that once in a game. So I cruised around 64. Um, actually, I was at a, at a tournament this past summer or maybe this past fall, and, I, and Coach Walton came up to me. And at that point, he was at Oklahoma. And we were talking about, you know, back in the day. And he said, yeah, you didn't throw, you didn't blaze it by us. But we looked for the arm slot on your rise ball. And that's what we were looking for because it wasn't because you were blowing it by us. It's because you were spinning it past us. So um, just pitchers in general, I just kind of watched pitchers in general, but Lisa Fernandez was so dominant on the mound and her demeanor on the mound is more or less what I was looking at because she was a great drop ball pitcher at that moment. And I was more rise. So um, we weren't alike on the physical side, but the way she presented herself on the mound, even when I was younger, it was really, really intriguing to me. So that's kind of how that part got started. That, that behavior, even though we're not looking for it, it kind of rubs off on us. We kind of realize what it was later on down the road. We say to our players all the time, nobody looks for behavior when they're recruiting, but everybody notices it and it rubs off in different right. ways. So I think that's important. Absolutely. I, I, so there's a big part of this for me that, that it's innate. So when you were talking about, I wanted the ball in my hand, right? So as coaches, we know that, look, sometimes you don't know until you put the ball in somebody's hand. It could be a football in somebody's hand or a softball or a baseball or a basketball. And so there's that innate thing that certain people and players have that carry themselves on a success. And that's something special, you know, and I'm sure in the coaching um, aspect of softball, you see a couple of players that have that but teaching players how to win, right? So there's that natural dominant state, that natural fire, but teaching players how to win because you can't teach the fire. You're born with that. But I believe it's possible uh, Mm. to teach pitchers how to be efficient so that they become more of a winning mindset type pitcher because there's a, there's a, do you agree that there's a difference between pitching and thinking about what you need to do and the movements and the mechanics, but then, a competitive engagement where you're in a winning mindset, whatever that is. It could be that I want to beat that batter or it could be that I'm executing this plan of whether it's hitting spots or spinning or whatever it is. So, you know, how do we help more pitchers become winning pitchers? Well, I think it starts obviously in your bullpen and at your lessons. Um, I know, you know, I'm a pitching instructor and there are moments where you're, first of all, you're dealing with girls and you're dealing with girls of a whole bunch of different ages. So, we know that there's a lot of emotions, there's a lot of hormones running, that type of thing. So I think it's really important for us as instructors to, to realize and notice, you know, how they're feeling and what they're feeling at that moment. And for, I can give you an example, a, a great example. Last night I had a girl come in and, and physically she was fine, but I could tell emotionally she was not. So I think those types of things are important to recognize as a coach, as an instructor, as a parent, and help the girls through that type of stuff because they cannot be successful physically on the mound unless they're in a good state mentally, a hundred percent. And people, you know, you hear people say all the time, well, you know, sports are 90% mental and 10% physical. I agree with that, but I do think that it's, it's more, I think it's a little bit more balanced than that because you have to be great physically and before you're, you know, you can, you can get on the mound and think I'm great, but if you can't do it physically, you're not going to get the result you want. So, um, so training kids on the mental side, as well as the physical side is just as important. And we do that in our lessons. My lessons are 30 minutes or, or an hour, just depending on their age, but we do both every time they come every single time. I think it's really, really important. There's, there's two great takeaways. So again, for the numbers that you put up and the success that you have, and then you can tell pitchers that you weren't the hardest thrower out there, that you weren't blowing it by people, right? Even though we, we love power, we love the concept of throwing hard, that wasn't necessarily your, necessarily your niche. And I also love the fact that, again, for as dominant as you were and are as a person, that you relate to that emotional side of your pitchers. Uh, you know, most people have heard this too many times. And if you haven't heard it at all, I got this from Coach Mike Candrea. Guys have to play good to feel good. Ladies have to feel good to play good. And so it's a learned behavior for guys. I speak for myself. It took a while. You think you're doing it right. You think you're, you understand, but you don't. And, and when you understand that, I realized that I needed to give a certain amount of time in my lesson to just talking. But it, was, but it went against the industry standard. The industry standard right. was 
you know, hit your hit for a half hour, throw the pitches, throw the pitches. So you look for that in your students and will you take as much time as you need uh, to address things and talk with them? Absolutely. So um, let's just say that it's an hour lesson. Um, you know, when they come in, uh, ask them if, if we're in the middle of playing, which right now is a little bit different. But if we're in the middle of playing, I'll ask them, you know, how are things going? How are things working? And then we will talk about how did you feel when such and such was happening? So a good example would be, you know, you gave up a single, then you gave up a walk. How are you feeling at that point? And so we kind of walk through what they do physically. What do you do? What's your routine on the mound? And then what do you do mentally? How do you slow things down in the game to where you can get back to where you need to be and then get to that next pitch? So, um, and, and firecrackers do a great job of talking about, you know, your routine and, and your breath and that type of thing. We do the same thing at lessons because I think if you don't practice it at lessons or in your bullpens or wherever it is you, you're practicing, um, or training, we call it training, um, wherever it is you're training, then how do you expect that to translate to the field? So, um, we do talk. I mean, I think there are some kids that, that need to throw, throw, throw because they're not getting to throw a lot at home or they don't have somebody who can catch them or they don't have a net or they don't have somebody that can, you know, watch them. So there are definitely kids that will show up and we need to throw for an hour, but in the middle of their throwing while they're taking their water break, we're talking. So, um, I, I do a lot of, I'm, I'm a, a learner who needs to see things too. So, um, when I'm at lessons, whether it's an hour lesson, 30 minute lesson, whatever it is, I'm up the whole time. So I don't ask them to do things I can't do. Although there are some pitches that I teach kids that I can't throw. Um, but I ask them, I ask them questions and we make sure that they're feeling it. They understand what they're doing that way. When they do get to the field, they know what's happening and they know how to correct when they're on the field. So their parents aren't yelling at them. <laughs> right. Well, and it's part of it's part of the environment that we we are in, right? I like I think it goes back to what you said. There's a balance, you know. If you, if you spend all your time talking and visualizing, and you don't do the physical work, you know, laying it down, so it's a balance. So there might be sometimes where it's might be maybe ninety percent physical type lesson. You can't always just split it in the middle. It's like coaching right. you're playing a game. You have to kind of smell what comes to you. You have to feel what's coming to you. And, and so, like you said, there's no use just throwing her, you know, on the rubber. If there's, there's something under that, you know, is kind of cooking and, and, and bubbling that we need to address first. So I love that you yeah. brought that up, Courtney, because I think it's something that if we just spend a little more time in it and dealing with it, there's, it's vulnerable. It can be uncomfortable, but part of this game is getting comfortable with your, with your discomfort. So let me ask you this in those moments in the big moments when you were out there with a college world series facing the best the best, did you feel in the pocket? Did you get nervous, excited before games? Like emotionally, how were you at, at, in the, at the highest level of play? How was it for you? So for me, and this is, it's, it's crazy to even say, but from when I was young, first time I ever took the mound to the last time I ever took the mound, I had butterflies before every single game. And I would get nervous if I didn't. I really would go, okay, this is about to be really bad because I, I, I never had the confidence of I'm going to go in and I can beat them. You know what I mean? There was always that what if. And I think that's really important for people in general to remember. That's why we play the game, because anything can have an, happen on any given day. It was not guaranteed that I was going to be, you know, the 250 ranked team in the country. There was no guarantees. What happens if I had my worst game of the day and they had their best? So every time I took the mound, there was always butterflies. And I prepared for each game in the bullpen the same, no matter who my competition was. And I think that I didn't learn those things until I was older. Obviously I, I, you know, I didn't have, and I didn't, I don't want to say I didn't have great coaches, but I didn't have the knowledge and my coaches didn't have the knowledge that we have now. Um, you know, it was just two guys that had played baseball and, and they were coaching us for fun, I guess. I really don't know because they had real jobs. So um, you know, we weren't, we, we didn't have that type of direction, but I do know that if, <laughs> if, if you didn't find me in the bathroom at least once before each game, something wasn't right. So I just think that's so important that I encourage our parents and coaches to, to make sure their players and pitchers watch this because it's relatable stories, right? So even the fact that whether they have seen it or they, they've seen it, it doesn't matter to know where you're at in the game. And to hear this testimony and to realize that they can say, wow, that is me like every week for whatever reason that you feel. You know, the, the UFC fighters talk about their 
the, the, the worst thought in their mind is even between rounds. It's like, I don't want to do this anymore. There's, there's certain, there's certain emotions that attack you. And at that level, I mean, I mean, gosh, it's a bludgeoning sport and you're getting cut open and everything. Yeah. Else. But there the point is that there are emotions of fear. And then you'll always hear someone say at some point that if you didn't have that, it's, there's no use fighting. There's no use playing. There's no use, you know, you're existent. It's, and I think that's such an important uh, subject to talk about, or at least bring up so that players can know that it's okay. And that you, so what was, what pushed you through that? Was it, was there a consistency to your game? So meaning you had a, a, you know, you said you had a consistent bullpen routine. So Mm -hmm. what helped you propel and push through to be able to to consistently perform the way you did? What made you consistent? Well, I, I just think the way that I trained was, was probably it. Um, you know, I, I showed up to the field for, for training. I did a lot of individual training rather than team training because obviously I threw a lot of innings. So for, for during the week, for practice time with the team, I didn't see the team as often, but I did a lot of um, individual training. I did spins. And I think it's important for pitchers and players to understand that you need to work on your craft more than once a week, even if it's without a ball. Even if it's inside your house, just going through the physical side of what you're supposed to be doing to make you great, I think that was what I did. Um, Actually, I had a girl who was, uh, she was a freshman when I was a junior. She sent me a message recently, and I don't remember this, but she said that we would do spins in the hallway of the dorm, even after a four-hour practice. And, And I really don't remember this, but apparently I did it with her, and she was calling to thank me for that. And I think that's really important too, is, you know, sometimes you may not be feeling it. Why don't grab a teammate instead of a coach? Because, you know, your coach is going to be like, ah, I'm tired, whatever it may be. Grab a teammate. They can help you out. So working on your craft all the time doesn't mean you have to go outside for two hours. You can spend 10 to 15 minutes in the house doing spins or, you know, throwing up a ball, throwing a ball up against the, the wall to work on your defensive skills or, you know, air swinging in the house whatever it may be, but whatever it is you do, you need to make sure that you're giving it some time every single day, not 30 minutes, not an hour. Maybe it's 10 minutes, maybe it's 15 minutes. But for me, when it came down to my bullpens, I think where I really figured it out is um, I would throw the first inning in the bullpen and, and you'll hear, or you'll see a lot of pitchers. A lot of times they'll either win it or, or I'm sorry, they'll lose the game in the first inning or they'll lose the game in the last inning. You're not going to see a lot of pitchers lose it in the middle. Cause at that point they're kind of cruising. So it's that first pitch of the game that sets the tone. You know, we don't want to throw a ball for the first pitch of the game, but we also don't want to um, get to the last inning and not know how to close it out. So there's this little saying that I tell the kids all the time. I'm like, at the beginning of the of the beginning of the game, we're slicing the pig. At the end of the game, we're bringing the bacon home. So it's slice the pig, bring home the bacon. So we got to make sure that we do our job from first pitch to last pitch. And I learned that if I was going to lose, I was going to lose in the first inning. I could shut you down at the end, no problem. But if I was going to lose, it was going to be in that first inning. So I would throw my first inning in the bullpen. And, and typically, you know, first batter of the game is going to be a slapper. So I'd throw to a slapper, first batter. Second batter might have been a contact hitter, somebody who might bunt. Third batter could have been a power hitter. Whatever it was, by the time I was thrown in the bullpen, we typically had the lineups. So I know who, who I was facing, first three batters. And, and, and really, that's where I saw a change. So, you know, my routine before the game and my preparation before the games going in, because um, we played a lot of games on the road. Um, and so we didn't have series the way they, the way the kids are playing now, but um, I would prepare during the week. And then before every game, whether my bullpen was five minutes or 20 minutes, depending on how many games we had played that day, that is the one thing that was consistent was I would throw the first inning in the bullpen. One of the things I love about uh, our players in the South is uh, when a lot of them talk about skinning the pig and bringing home the bacon, they've actually done it. So out here in California. I haven't, but. (laughs) (laughs) I was going through my mind. The other one was our coach, Holly, who's a vegetarian. I was thinking skin the potato and bring the French fries home because she's definitely not going to be eating any bacon. I love that. I love the fact that you addressed the first inning and the last inning. Uh, Coach Mike Mike White talks about uh, more games are lost than won. I explained to some of our coaches on a regional meeting that if you understand this mindset pocket that we talk about and try to create for our coaches, that 
you really just wait for the other team to either implode, mismanage or something, and then you just execute it. You don't have to do all this work and being so perfect. You just allow it to unfold because so many people don't know how to manage themselves, their thought process, you know, observe and make decisions. It's all about the expectations in a game and then the reactions when things don't go uh, a certain way and then everything starts to unfold. So I love the, the fact that we talk about the first inning and the last inning. The scariest six outs in softball and therefore the most exciting in championship play where you hear crowds going crazy from the other side of the park, it's always in the last six outs. And when you have a, a let's say, a, a lower food chain team up six to four against a top whatever, it's it's that nervous time of them all of a sudden. They're excited. They're winning. They're feeling great. They pound. They jump ahead first inning. And the last six, they start thinking, oh, no, we have to get six. Right. Miles. And then you start to see the mentality change. Instead of like, who cares if we lose? Like, let's just keep going at them. Let's keep stealing. Let's keep whatever. Let's just keep going. And if we lose, so what? Let's just go, but to, but to worry about the win or to go to the next bracket and, and it slips away. And then there it was, you know, I'll be honest with you. That's not, that's not the satisfying part of coaching for me is, is, is either beating that other coach or vulnerable player. It's really the process of what our players go through and how, and what it got to take there, or what it took to get there. But I think that's a really, really good point. And I love the fact that you brought that up. Did you throw loose? Would you describe yourself? Were you, were, did you throw loose? Cause you do a lot of innings. So how were you injury wise? Did, were you relatively injury free? I mean, how did that, how was that relationship? Yeah, I, I really was. Um, I never had any arm issues. Obviously we had good trainers taking care of my arm, um, but I never had any arm issues. Um, my freshman year, I had a hip issue, but that wasn't from softball. That was from doing something on that side. And then, um, uh, but, but after that, really the only other thing I had is I had a pulled muscle in my stomach one time. But I, I think I, I really don't know where that came from, but I never had any arm issues. Um, I always took care of my arm in regards to ice and heat. Um, and I know there's some there's some juggling information on that. Should we heat? Should we ice? What should we do? That kind of stuff. Obviously, I don't want to get into any of that because I've seen both sides. I've seen people say you don't need to if you're not having any pain. And then I've seen people say you need to even just because we're going to take care of the muscles. Um, but I was really, really lucky. Um, I didn't really have any issues, um, but you know, I did throw a lot of innings, but I didn't throw a lot of innings that were outside of gameplay. But with that being said, obviously when you throw in a game, you know, the mind is, you just have to focus a little bit more. So I don't know if throwing, you know, 300 pitches during the week is as tough as throwing 300 pitches on the weekend. <clears throat> Cause I didn't, I didn't do that part. I didn't throw during the week that much. I did a lot of more short stuff. Um, but I think that as a pitcher in general, um, when I teach and, and I think the best pitchers you see, they're very flowy that, you know, you don't see a lot of pitch, your dominant pitchers. They're not super tight. Everybody stays real loose. And, and again, if you, if you line up 10 pitchers, I don't think any of the dominant pitchers are going to have everything look exactly the same. I can, I, you know, I can name names and, and every one of them is going to look different. So staying loose and, and making sure your body's in good shape, your core specifically is in good shape is, is a big deal for a pitcher. Um, you know, there's some things that you don't want to do as far as weights and, and certain muscles, you want to take care of those. So I think it's important to make sure you know what you're doing, but, but staying loose and fluid is a, is a, it's kind of an absolute when it comes to a pitcher for me. You don't want to be jerky uh, because that creates a lot of jerkiness in the body, which the muscles don't like that. We like everything to be smooth and flowy. So, and, and aggressive and strong, but smooth and flowy will get you the speed you're looking for. Uh, we did a podcast or a one-on-one yesterday with uh, Nairi White, and she used one of her dad's fra- uh, phrases, and that is uh, powerless effort versus effortless power. You know, and that's one of the reasons why I like right. to do things with her and, and how her motion looks. Uh, yesterday's uh, discussion was really about fluidity and, and sequency, sequences that she t- calls it from first point to the last point, how it all kind of puts together. I, I believe it's just an area that um, if we just spend more time thinking about it, a little self-awareness of how we're putting the pieces together, the expression of all the, the, the pieces that we've learned, whether it's hitting or pitching, that you start to get to that, you know, at some point it'll get old, but when. When something looks like that to me, it's something that not only do I want to watch, I'll pay to watch. And I don't go somewhere else when something is in front of me 
that is drawing me in or inspiring me or is entertaining or has a has a beauty to it. I mean, it's it's what we do when we're there's a certain entertainment aspect towards it. So I, I love the fact that you brought that up as well. Uh, the one thing that we wanted to talk a little bit about and to give our pitchers something to work with as far as developmental wise, because all of these things are so important that I wanted to think about. But you and I quickly kind of discussed, you know, what happens when your bread and butter, whatever that is, your best pitches, you know, they're not working. Or so many times, like I explained to our coaches, you know, you have your pitchers have a screwball, a curveball, a drop and a rise and a changeup, one off speed pitch. And then I watched them call pitches. The first two changeups bounce or they're not effective. No confidence in that pitch. Now everything comes in same speed. Now this pitcher is going to try to execute this for, let's say, five innings in most of our games, except for championship play. And you just see the pressure because it's timing. And so, you know, there's not this confidence or an ability to take something and be deceptive with it, even though it's not your best pitch. So for you, example was, was what were your pitches that were not your bread and butter, but you were still important for you to be able to mix in so that the batter could, you know, would be more deceived by your, your bread and butter pitches. So um, bread and butter for me were rise, screw, change. I could live on those three pitches, <clears throat> and I think that I had the most confidence in those. And then curveball, didn't like it, but I could throw it. And drop ball, never threw it, but I had it. Um, so I think a lot of times people forget that you still need to work on the ones that aren't your favorite. And we do it all the time in lessons. And obviously my daughter's a pitcher. We, we do it all the time with, with any pitcher is obviously you spend a little bit more time on the pitches. You know, you're going to throw the most because you want to dominate with those. But I think what you said is important. Your bread and butter is either not working or everybody knows that's what it is. So they're sitting on it. So you have to be able to go some other direction. So when I, when I work with pitchers, I tell them, you need something that's dominant left to right, and you need something that's dominant up or down, and you have to have an off-speed. Plain and simple, you have to have an off-speed. So for me, I, I, there's actually one – when we talked about, you know, what are we going to talk about, there was, a, there was a game. I was playing LSU. It was out as, I was at a regional. Their best hitter was up. Ashley Dakota was her name. Third baseman, All-American. I had thrown to her probably, I don't know, 12 times because we played them so much. And she knew what I was going to throw her. And all of a sudden, I got a drop ball called because I didn't call my own game. All of a sudden, the drop ball signal went down. I stepped off the mound thinking, nope, she got that wrong. There's no way they're calling that. <laughs> so I, like, took a deep breath, got back on, and she dropped the drop ball signal again. <laughs> I'm thinking, have they lost their mind? I can't throw this. I haven't thrown this. I haven't even warmed this up. So that's the type of situation where that this is perfect. Okay. She doesn't know it's coming. So I threw it and struck her out looking. And it was one of those things where I'm like, wow. So I, I think the important piece of this is, is, is I didn't, I, you know, I worked on it, but confidence wise, I didn't throw it that much. So I knew I could, but I never was really put in that situation to where I had to throw it all the time. So I, you know, when you, when you, when you go around and you see pitchers, you know, kids are rise ball pitchers or they're drop ball pitchers, or they're curve ball pitchers. They've got a great changeup. You know, people, they, they kind of, they, they label kids when it comes to that. This is what she is. But if you can, and I think a good example too is Rachel Garcia. I was, I was listening to something and she said, you know, everybody knew I had a great rise ball. And I wanted to develop a, a great drop going, I think it was between her junior and senior year, which whenever those years might have played out. But then you watched her at the College World Series last year, and she was also throwing a drop. So she changed herself dynamically. She could go up or down. She throws super hard. She had a change up. So I think being able to have a, a good arsenal of pitches, you know, you, you know what your three are going to be. You should pick three. And, and, and dominate with those three, but have the others, whether you use it as a setup or, and, and that would be, you know, you're predominantly screwball, but you want, you know, she's sitting on your screw or she's fouled off a couple of screwballs. We can't go change because you don't like that either. So we can't go up because, you know, you, whatever that, whatever it may be. So let's go out 
let her see something different and then come right back in. So use it as a setup or use it as, okay, well, my best pitch isn't working. I can go with this. And I had that situation happen before too. I was playing in a game. They weren't swinging at rise balls. So we had to switch. I ended up throwing drops one time for a whole game. So which, which game was that? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, we were playing Wisconsin of all people. Um, we should have dominated. They were beating us one to nothing. And then we, we did come back and win, but it was one of those things I was on the mound and I, I vividly remember going, why are they not swinging at my rice ball? They are not swinging. What is going on here? So I came into were the dugout. I'm like, well, we're going to have. Were they in take mode? Were they seeing something? They were in take mode. Yeah. Take mode. I'm thinking, I'm throwing you a low rise. What are you doing? So they're, they're, they're taking the chance that you may throw a strike down the middle, but they're looking, they, they might have said, This is that my mind works, right? Because if you look at her last 30 pitches, rise balls, how many of them were strikes? She'll bring the low rise in three and two, three out of 30. But this bread and butter is looking like a strike and it takes off. So whatever you see, don't trust it. Just don't swing. We, we had to do it against Amanda Freed, and it's a little tricky mind play, but look what it does. You're, you're sitting there asking, because that's all I'm looking for is the other coaches. We're watching the picture. Is she asking herself, why aren't they swinging at this, right? Yeah. I was literally going, why are they not swinging? So I came in the dugout. I'm like, we're going to have to go down because they're not swinging up. And so we went down, and then all of a sudden they started swinging. I was like, heck yeah. So, But my drop was the last pitch I learned. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't a pitch that I used all the time, but I still threw it. And so my, my thing would be to pitchers and to, you know, people that are helping the pitchers out is you still have to spend some time on the pitch that you may or may not throw ever in a game um, because it's important because at some point you're going to run into a situation where they're either not swinging or they know what's coming and you've got to go a different route or you need to set up your bread and butter by going the other route as well. So um, pitch calling, I think, is, is super important when it comes to winning a game for pitchers. I think it's important um, for pitchers to know what pitch they would like to throw. Um, I'm not going to get into the debate of whether coaches or, or athletes should call their own game. I'm not doing that. Um, I think that's for everybody else to figure out. But I think it's really important for pitchers to know, okay, I should throw this in this situation and I shouldn't throw this in this situation. I think it's important for them also to read the batters. Um, you're going you're gonna to come across batters that are – they are going to try to intimidate you with their eyes, and I think you need to be able to do that with your eyes as well. But know that physically you can throw any pitch in your arsenal and, and have 100% confidence in it because you're going to need it at some point. I think, I think part of that, uh, Courtney, and you've described it a few times, it's how you feel about certain pitches. So you feel confident with your best pitches. You feel certain things. I think it's important for our coaches to understand that we want to recognize that our pitchers feel certain ways and don't deny those feelings. But when we are trained professionally, we, we have to look at our pitches like tools in a toolbox. And the tool right. has to fit the situation. You may be more comfortable with a crescent wrench, but you need a screwdriver. The crescent That's wrench... Right isn't going to work in this situation, but I grew up with a crescent wrench. I've always had it in my hand. That's a feeling. I get that, but you're not going to get the screw in with that. And so if you think about it, the most common pitch to me is the changeup. That's the one I see abandoned first. It's a theoretical yes. second pitch that pitchers uh, uh, learn, but then realistically it's the first pitch that coaches abandon when it's not working. So I am a 13 year old uh, or 14 year old student of yours. Uh, I walk up. I don't have a lot of confidence in my changeup. And in one to two sentences, I walk up and say, Coach Courtney, my coach said he's going to call this changeup this week because we're, we're facing, you know, one of the top ten teams. What do I do with it? <laughs> you throw it because you have to show it. Uh -huh. Whether it's a great pitch or not, you have to show something off speed. Because you said earlier in our, in our conversation is they bounce the first one or the, they bounce the first two, and then we go speed the next one. Okay, everybody can sit on speed, even if it's 70. They can sit on speed. You continue to throw that pitch in the game because, at, who knows, maybe in the third inning, it shows up. And then you're good to go, innings three through seven. But you got to throw it. Keep trusting yourself. And I tell kids in lessons this all the time. Okay, if we throw 10 change-ups and seven of them are great, we've got to make those other three better to where at least they are, you know, they'll swing coming out of your hand. It's got to be a believable pitch. So keep throwing it, keep practicing it, keep training, keep believing in it, and eventually it's going to show up. And if it doesn't, you, you tweak and you figure out how to make it better 
by making a small adjustment rather than a big one. In, in development, I'm, I'm into the up and down all around, as you know, above and below the ring. In games, unless it's just really ineffective, I, I would suggest throw it low. Just bounce it. Let them see the throw top. Throw it low, yeah. Michelle Smith, that's the one thing that I got that I really take away from her knowledge is let the batter see the top of the ball. The, the lower it is, they only see the top. You know, again, there's anxiety levels and the same thought process going in a lot of under, underdeveloped hitters that that changes speeds. You know, to take the pressure off of the pitcher when she's worried about it not working. I said, how many batters like it when you take pull the plug on the batting machine and they don't know it? Or all of a sudden you Zero. shut the ball off and they're hitting <laughs> and then the ball just kind of comes out they look at you like what the heck are you doing so think right. of the favor that you're doing any pitcher or any hitter or team when you've in your mind uh not made it okay to throw the off-speed pitch so find a play i think that off-speed pitch that changeup is the first one not only bounce it but you know if i turn my, my body kind of like a right-handed batter you can bounce that change in the other batter's box over there and the batter's going to naturally lean over and look now what do you got? You come back with that screwball that is your bread and butter. So you, you've widened the plate out there, out another three feet with a ball, but the, the spectrum of vision takes the batter's eyes out there. And again, you can watch batters to see how they think in between pitches, and most of them don't have this process. You, just, you zip that in. Plus, let's say it's not fast enough, so you're throwing like a 33-mile-an-hour changeup. And then that, you go again. I, I have pitchers that's like, oh, no, it's too slow, and they kind of like have this. I say, you know, too slow means it puts me to sleep. So put me to sleep with 33 in the dirt, seven feet outside, and then your 56 seems like 59, and it's just that yes. little bit of zip. And I guess we can go to the other side of that, right? Like if, it's, if your off speed is your bread and butter and you don't feel you throw hard enough to keep a batter uh, honest inside, well, don't try to throw an inside strike. Throw off the plate inside. Get her to straighten up. Get her to back up off the plate, and then your your curveball break into that outside corner. You know, it, it it widening the plate is so important because because it. I've said this before. The game is about home plate. Like who wins home plate? Pitchers dominate it. Hitters dominate it. I mean, home plate is the most precious part of this game because uh, she who dominates it and owns it is usually going to come out, you know, in a pretty good situation. So uh, whether it's the drop, the rise, you know, ha know, know how to miss good and then have the, have the confidence in what you're learning, not so much emotional confidence, confidence that you can put your third and fourth and fifth best pitches, you know, somewhere you can set up your one and two. So you're working on developing four or five pitches, but really bread and butter, as you said, three, that's it, you know. 10, 10 and 12-year-olds, Courtney, like what are your, your pockets of students? This will be the last thing we talk about is, you know, 10s and 12s, 10 to 13. Like what's what's the priority development there, There, maybe 13 to 16, 16 to 18? Like do you have kind of a pocket of development for your younger kids, what you like to see them concentrate on and how they progress? Yeah, so when, when they come into me and they're younger, it's obviously all about mechanics. The first two pitches we're going to learn are fastball changeup. Mechanically, I think they're pretty similar other than release point, um, you know, because like, like we've talked about, the changeup has to look like everything else. So when it comes to mechanics, I don't care if you're 18 or if you're 10. When you show up to a lesson with me, we're going to make sure your mechanics look good because, in my opinion, mechanics um, keep you from getting hurt and they help you learn new pitches and it also helps you throw harder based on whatever your body can do. And I tell this to parents all the times too. You know, when, when somebody looks at Kelly Barnhill, for example, they're like, well, she's a little shorter, and, but she still throws hard. I'm like, well, some kids are born to throw hard. That's just how it goes. So what we do is we want to make sure that our mechanics are good to where we can get everything we can out of your body. And, and that's our goal is to get everything we can out of your body. So between 10 and 12, um, we're working on mechanics, making sure everything is, is right. We're working on change-ups. And then once we kind of have our change-up down, then we can move on to something else. If, 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 you're, you know, if you're learning five pitches in a year, you might want to question what's going on. Um, I think realistically between 10s and 12s, I think kids are learning. Do I really want to be a pitcher? Do I want to put in this much work? Is it worth my time? Do I want to do something else? Do I want to focus on a different position? So between 10 and 12, mechanics, speed, and off-speed for sure. And then, you know, I think each kid has their own kind of rhythm and, and their body does certain things. So not every single student should learn in an order. It shouldn't be fast change, curve, drops. It shouldn't be that way. It should be based on what they do well 
and what their body is going to do well. You're going to find kids that they tend to lean over when they land. Okay, drop might be better for you. Or you got kids that fall to the right. A screw bomb might be a little better for you. Or you can go the opposite way and teach them the curve because it's going the other way. But between 10 and 12, we're working on mechanics and fastball for sure. And I like to try to get them a, a two or three spinny pitches. Um, and, and I think their progression is based on how often they work outside of lessons as well. And then once you hit 14, you know, you're back to 43 feet. There's an advantage to 43 feet because you've got more room for the ball to break. Um, you've got more room for the changeup to die when it gets to the plate. So I love 43 feet. I love when the kids get to go back. Plus, it's the farthest back you're going to go. So there's no more. We don't have to learn anything different. We don't have to adjust our release points and that kind of thing when we hit 43 feet. So once they hit 14. So huge. That's, that's a, such a big point. What you just said about what 43 feet does as an opportunity with what you just said, more room to break and more room for off-speed pitches to like be harder to judge. Not wow, let's see how hard we can throw. Remember, to get the ball from where my fist is to a batter from here back past the batter with speed is an extremely hard thing to do. And it so is. these pitchers that are constant, yes, home run and fastball. That's what's the most glamorous parts of our game. We love to watch the home run. <laughs> it is. I, my, as a fan, the way that I play the game, I get it. But we're talking about winning pitching. We're not talking about pitchers that just throw pitches. And so the 43 feet aspect of using it to your advantage. So here's the question to our coaches and pitchers. Are you doing that? Is your mindset aligned with being successful at 43 feet or have you well, inten you're, uh, well intended, but your mindset has been to blow the ball past batters at a greater distance, which it doesn't make sense unless you've got that thing that's special out of your hand. And you can usually see that we did one with Taryn Alvello a couple of weeks ago. So that ball is coming out of her hand at a pretty early age, pretty something pretty special, but you're talking about a very small percentage of players. So right. thank you for, for mentioning that because that's that pocket maybe for the 14 and under player to now get the experience, see what's happening with the pitch, go get that work experience, right? Not that you have to win everything, but all right, put it over the middle. She hits a home run. Throw it down low and away, she hits a ground ball. Even if it went through the hole for a base hit, you lost the game. You got the ground ball. Pitch, pitching the contact, right? Yeah. Pitching the contact is huge. And, and that goes back to winning with your worst pitch sometimes. If, you're, if your stuff is not great, pitch the contact. Let your defense help. That's why they're there. You don't have to strike everybody out. Quite frankly, I'd rather you throw three pitches in an inning than ten and strike out three batters. I want less stress on your arm. So pitch to contact sometimes is, is where it's at. And, and I think if people will do that, stay around the plate and work their pitches, those strikeouts are going to come. So it's been getting ahead of the count and then knowing how to expand it or doing whatever. So whether you've got right. those pins that are deceptive, sounds like that was a big part of your game or just knowing where to place the pitch. Remember pitchers use the anxiety level. And also I'm going to say the training, the, the type of development a lot of hitters go through, which again, is very physical. Use it to your advantage. Because if you, if you pick up what the batter is telling you, an extreme amount of confidence, the number four batter that wants to win the game, bounce that change up. Don't throw it for a strike. Her long arms are going to re reach it. But then uh, uh, the anxious batter that's result-based and worried about what's going to be said to her or, you know, failure isn't okay in her mind if you don't get a hit, she's going to expand her strikes up. You know, a few of them are going to take uh, good pitches to hit. You don't want to live in there, but they're going to expand their strike zone. So just take what they're giving you. I think that that is – that is so important. I think that's a great point. Now let's go to 16 to 18. So even your daughter, Britton, right, who has just been a pleasure to work with. And just, again, the experience for me has just been so great because it's challenging with our, with our distance. Now you talk about getting them ready for college. What are you looking for with your pitchers there and getting them set to be on their own? So 16s and 18s, I think that's where they're really figuring out who they are as a pitcher. You know, what, what are my greatest strengths? What are my best pitches? Still working on what's not your best, but the, the mind is, is a big, big part of the game from 16s to 18s because they're playing. Most kids are going to skip their second year of 16s and go play 18s anyways because they want that competition. They want to play against better hitters. So their training changes a little bit. Still at, at lessons and in bullpens, you should still be working on mechanics and making sure that everything's right because if, if something goes – haywire on that then everything's going to go crazy but the mental side uh, but you know in that older age group is a big big deal because let's be honest when you get to college 
you're the 18 year old low man on the totem pole playing against kids that are 22, 23, and they're stronger than you. They've been in this game for four years. They know the ins and outs, you know, they, they know the umpires, they know. So, and not to mention the fact that we have video technology that just makes the game so much harder for the pitcher standing in the circle. It's like her eyes, people's eyes are on them at every single moment. But the mental side, when you get older is, is, is to me is the most important part. Cause I think the game can be won or lost in the circle based on your mind. And, and if you can train a pitcher to calm down on the mound, have that routine, no matter what, don't show your emotion. It, it could be going crazy in your mind, but you got to learn how to slow that down and go back to what you do. Well, focus on you and, and kind of block everything else out. Let everything else be a blur and focus. We work a lot with uh, big rings and small rings in our bullpens and in our lessons, especially with the older girls, is we focus, you know, hula hoop size. They throw through the hula hoop, then we go to a smaller ring, and then we go to a smaller ring at the end. And that's blocking everything else out and focusing on what you want at the end. So that's more we, – we do a lot more mental training with the older kids. The physical side is definitely there, but if they can see it, then they can do it. And that's, that's wholeheartedly what I believe that, that will help a pitcher out. And, and I know it did for me when I was playing too, because the, the emotion and the, the feel of the playing in front of 10,000 people in Oklahoma city, you don't get that every single day. So you have to train for that and you have to put yourself in that situation when you're practicing and when you're training in the bullpen. So older girls, I think the mental side is going to be a whole lot more important than the physical side. Not that the physical side's not, you still need to do both, but I think you need to you need to add in some mental training because because you have to remember too, if they give up a home run, some kids are going to go, oh well, I'm not that good anymore, or you know she lost a game, or or whatever it may be. You have to continue to train them up and tell them you're okay. These things happen. It's the game. That's just how the game is. You win some, you lose some, and eventually you'll learn to win more than you lose if you can trust what you do. And, and, and know that the outcome is the outcome. It's where all of the attention is. But as you learn to play the game with a professional mindset, you realize that, look, that is there. Shift your focus over, like how you said, to the rings, to what you're the task at hand, right? Uh, when you said, you know, if they, if they see it or if they're shown it, they're more likely to do it. So I'd also ask coaches to think about where are your words coming from? Are you pointing out the problem? So if you tell a, a, a hitter that they're uh, pulling their head or they're flying open, what do they picture? They picture the problem, which is why even though we're trying to help, you don't develop confidence looking at yourself in the mirror when you're, the dialogue in your head is what you've been doing wrong. So right. hey, way to stand tall on that. Way to keep those shoulders relaxed. Wow, look at that posture. You know, all of that starts to build that self-imagery that I think is so important. The other aspect too, Courtney, is that our – our older players, our seniors in high school are going off to college and they're going to deal with something I call social politics. And that is that the pitching coach may have an idea on how to do things. The head coach now may be a diff- little different than the recruiting trip. Your roommate not be like uh, what you kind of hope they were. And so <laughs> how are you dealing with all of these real life situations about living on your own, which I love the fact that when, we, when we're empowering the 17 and 18 year olds to be prepared to stand on their own and not call home and, and complain about what's going on. They can call home and explain what's going on. But, you know, Britain's heard this, the, the instructions from us is to find a pocket, not just lip service, to always end the phone call with mom and dad, I'm going to be okay. You know, you've done a good job. Our coaches have done a good job. I'm prepared for this. So I'm going to go speak with my coach tomorrow and, and acknowledge this or my roommate, but I'm, you're not going to have to fly out tomorrow morning to come solve my problem. <laughs> something, you know, we know that there, I can't perform, I can't pitch, I can't live or whatever it is, but there's times when we have to create that change. But, uh, you know, I think that's really, really, really important. So uh, Courtney, we're at an hour and we, we definitely, I mean, I have a responsibility. If you don't mind, we got to, we got to dive back into this. And I, I want to finish by just telling you that it's, it's, it's going to be interesting on, and I love this ask, this approach that you have and then how you and I are working together with my crazy wherever approach I came in with this <laughs> daughter that you have in the middle who's just a sponge of wanting to you know be her best. And to me, the, the story, it's not an outcome. I'm always excited about the possibilities, but it's this combination of two worlds that we're working on right now. And I love it. And I've, uh, you know, again, it's kind of an indirect working relationship, but it's a great challenge for me. I respect what you've done so much. And I haven't really 
mentioned that enough, but digging in a little deeper today, and it's not, it's not like, ooh, wow, the body of work and the stats. You know, it's like we don't really put our stats. Just like you said, the, our body of work, really, you don't even know what it is. We don't put it out there. You can find it. You're a little more notable. You got the Wikipedia. We're not, we're not there yet. <laughs> but I, I, I love it. I think that you touched on some really, really good points for our people to think about. That's all we want people to do with these podcasts is give them conversation that gets them to think think about how they're doing and create their own self-awareness. Hearing your story has been amazing. Uh, always a little bit of insight to your background. You grew up that you weren't doing it seven days a week and playing softball all year round because diversity. So don't knock your kids if they want to play basketball or they want to run track or they want to do something else because in the long run, you might be saving their No, you are saving their mileage on their body parts. So yes. just a lot, a lot of good topics. Then what I'd like to do is I'll, I'll get in touch with you and then we'll pick some specific teaching points. I'd like to kind of transition, if you don't mind, into some things that we can now start to pass on. I really am hitting our, our, our pitchers hard with different uh, um, instructors and, and different people from the industry that I feel have great things to say. And so it's just like recipes on cooking. If there's not one way to cook spaghetti, listen, listen. But what you will find are these common denominators. There are words that I'm hearing in all of my conversations that you all have a certain uh, uh, common denominator that I actually enjoy kind <clears> of <throat> too so anything to say in closing to our players coaches anything as far as words of encouragement and you know where we're all headed here in the near future yeah well I know we're all excited to get back on the field and, and I know I am I'm just uh, I think everybody's itching to get back on the field but just remember take it low um you know you haven't thrown a game in a while don't go out and try to throw eight games in a weekend so we don't want to do that but uh just keep training you know when you're training prepare for for the game in your training time coaches um the kids are going to need some they're going to need some assistance when they get back on the field so be sure to be kind they're girls and they need you to love on them and then um but other than that we're super excited to get back on the field and hopefully it's real real soon so hopefully will be sooner more than later especially for you there in texas so oh yeah we're playing yeah. soon over here <laughs> Uh, we'll get together and we'll, I, I'd say probably a couple of weeks, we'll knock another one out okay. some pockets of teaching, okay? Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks, your Coach time. Tony. Thanks, All right, thank you.